I, it's hard for me to believe it's that long ago because it was very popular at the time and, and I used it in different sermon illustrations. I used it as the National Prayer Breakfast speaker at, um, yeah, what base was that? Where was I? Yeah, somewhere in California. I can't remember where I was. But uh, in any event, it was a, a great, I'm sure it was a great uh, prayer breakfast speech. But the prayer that I'm referencing is the prayer that Pastor uh, Joe Helms prayed at the Nashville um, Speedway in uh, 2011. It was an NASCAR prayer, and some of you may be familiar with it. And uh, just in case you're not, let's, let's hear uh, Pastor Joe. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for all your blessings. You said in all things give thanks. So we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before us. Thank you for the Dodges and the Toyotas. Thank you for the Fords, and most of all, we thank you for Roush and Yates partnering to give us the power that we see before us tonight. Thank you for GM Performance Technology and the R07 engines. Thank you for Sunoco Racing Fuel and Goodyear tires that bring performance and power to the track. Lord, I want to thank you for my smoking hot wife tonight, Lisa, and my two children, Eli and Emma, or as we like to call them, the Little E's. Lord, I pray you bless the drivers and use them tonight. May they put on a performance worthy of this great track. In Jesus' name, boogity, 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 amen. He, he is a pastor there in Lebanon, Tennessee at uh, Family Baptist Church. So uh, as you're still smiling, ask yourself, why is that prayer memorable? You don't have to answer out loud. Ask yourself, was it sincere? Was it disrespectful? Do you wish you could have prayed a prayer like Joe that day? Well, fast forward 10 years, and NASCAR came back to Nashville in 2021, and Joe was not asked to lead the invocation before the race. And I found an uh, interview with him, uh, both YouTube and then the uh, write-up in a racing magazine. Um, he said that they wanted to give other clergy the opportunity to pray. And he also said that was okay with him because he had used all of his best material on that prayer. <laughs> Today we come to John 17. The entire chapter is a prayer. The entire chapter is a prayer. It is intimately connected to the previous three chapters that we have been reading through and working through for the past almost four or five months. It is a prayer that summarizes who Jesus is and his relationship to his Father, the relationship he has to his disciples, and the relationship he will have to his coming church. He describes who he is and tells us some intimate details of his obedience, of the glory that he once had and the glory that will be restowed upon him about his death and the cross and it's a great chapter that most of us probably haven't spent much time with. Pastor Nelm's prayer was in fact sensational and the prayer that we call 
most biblical commentators call this the high priestly prayer. It is even more exciting and memorable than what my brother Joe prayed in Nashville. Others may try to top brother Joe. I would not want to have been the guy praying in 2021 after that guy's prayer. But I guarantee you no one will top the prayer that Jesus speaks to his father. That we have the ability to listen in to this prayer because of his holy word. And you'll see in this prayer three parts. Verses 1 through 5, which we will cover today, it's Jesus talking to the Father about himself. He's basically praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he is praying for his disciples. And then 20 to the end of the chapter, he is praying for other believers and the church. Today we begin with Jesus praying to the Father that the Father will return his glory. So, starts off in the back page for me. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Not an uncommon position for Jews of the day to pray. To look to heaven and open their mouth and eyes and pray to the Lord. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. That your son may glorify you. He'll use that word five times in this, these five verses. But you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you have given to me, or you gave to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Would you pray with me? Father, as we get a chance to see behind the scenes, if you will, we see the inside relationship that your son has with you and how he was obedient. And through his obedience, he glorified you and therefore you glorified him. Let that be a challenge for each of us to be obedient to you and help us to return the glory to Christ. For we live in a world where Christ is not often glorified. Speak to our hearts today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you will see in just a moment, this is not an identical prayer to the prayer prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the prayer that most of us know, that Jesus says, take this cup from me. If not my will, thy will. And we know from, this is, it's in Matthew, hang on, you'll make me think how fast I can say that. Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, and Luke 22. I, you, I think those are right, you can test me later. Some of you are taking notes, yeah, okay, I'll look them up. But those are, those are the synoptic gospels. You know, we've used that term before, and hopefully you've learned that. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar. John is the guy who went to a different game, but it's still the same. He saw the same thing, and he speaks in a different way. And this prayer, whether, and remember we talked almost two chapters ago, 
were they still at the table? This has happened, you know, let not your heart be troubled. That's chapter 14, all the way now we're chapter 17. Did that all happen around the table? You know, Judas has gotten up and left. He's gone to deceive him. He's gone to betray him. He's gone to turn him in. And Jesus talks at one time and says, let us go. So I even speculated, could it be that they were walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane? Perhaps. Whether they were sitting at the table or walking along, this is a different prayer than what you read in the Synoptic Gospels. One major difference is that the 11 remaining disciples hear all of this prayer. And that's something to take note of. Because on the other three, well, the other singular prayer in the Synoptic Gospels, the disciples fall asleep. Jesus asks them, come and go with me. Pray with me. Help me. You know, support me. Be with me. And they all fall asleep. Sort of like some of your prayers before you go to bed. Nobody, nobody even laughed. Okay, I'm sorry if I stepped on your toes. How many times has your spouse been praying? And when he or she says amen, they hear. <laughs> so you can blame it on their prayers, okay? The context of this prayer, as I said, is either at the table or walking towards the Mount of Olives. There the Garden of Gethsemane is uh, that uh, preparatory time before they come and and uh, arrest Jesus. But according to John, he calls this, if you will, the Lord's Prayer. Not the, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Lord's Prayer. That's often called the disciples' prayer because teach us how to pray, Lord. And he says, you know, when, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. This is the Lord's Prayer, a personal prayer that Jesus prayed. And he prays for himself and all those who are listening to say, now is the time. Now is the time. When he turned water into wine, his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, he said to his mother, now is not my time. When his brothers, which we, I thought was hilarious, they're ready to kill him in Jerusalem, and his brothers say, you should get up and go to Jerusalem. Think that through. How many of you have ever done that to your brother? Well, <laughs> You got to take off and go on down there because that's in chapter 7. He says, now is not my time. Then when they try to seize him in chapter, later on in chapter 7, he gets away from the crowd because it was not his time as of yet. That's 7 verse 30. And then in 8, chapter 8 verse 20, he's in the temple and they try to seize him one more time. And John writes, that was not his time. But then he starts foreshadowing. He starts flagging that the time is about to come because we read in John 12, 23, the time has come. And then again in John 13, 1, he says, the time is now. And here we have Jesus praying, Father, glorify your son because now is the time. Man, I should stop and just say amen. I see people's faces that I haven't seen in a while, and I just want to go hug them, and I'm not a hugger, so I'm just going to shut up and keep on going. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Although Jesus prays for himself, his prayer is hardly like our prayers. And maybe I don't know you as well as I think you do. Maybe I'm just going to talk about myself. Sometimes we pray for health or wealth, for passion or for possessions. We pray for more time, more stuff, more friends, more, more, more. That is our personal prayer life. Jesus simply asks to be returned 
to glory. To be clothed in splendor again. If you would go back and go on our YouTube channel and look at the sermons that nobody else looks at, but that's okay. Dan and I do. Hey, look, Dan, we had three people look at it this week. No, we actually get more than that. But if you went back four months, you'd see a sermon up there called Glorify. And that's the first time. That's in John 12, I think 23, where he says, Glorify your son. The time has come for the Father to glorify the son. And we talked about that Greek word, doxe. It's where we get doxology from. It is that Hebrew word, kavad, that means heavy. It is a clothing. It is a, a majestic title of splendor. And if you'll take it in that context to understand what glory is, this, this heaviness, if you will, this importance, this respect, not disrespect, this respect, and majesty, Jesus is telling the Father, put it back on me. Because if you remember John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All the glory, all the reverence, all the respect, all the power, and we read from Paul in Philippians that he emptied himself. He gave up those things. Was he born in a royal palace? No. He was born in a stable. He gave up those glories of heaven, didn't give up his divinity because he proves it time and again that he is God's son, but he gave up that glory, and now he's saying, God, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And we'll see that that all comes together in the cross. His return to glory only comes by him allowing himself to be nailed to a cross for you and me. He will have to suffer, he will have to die, and he will victoriously rise again from the grave to bring glory to the Father and to himself. Therefore, his obedience to the Father, here's a point you could write down, and kids, if you're paying attention, obedience to his Father brought him glory. If you want to give your parents a gift, obey them. I know that's, that's not contemporary thinking, right? If you want to give your parents a gift, be obedient to them. Now is the time for each of us to be obedient to the Father. And when I wrote that down, I put, now is the time... And I remember my mom and dad, they had a typewriter. Any of you have typewriters at your house? Anybody can still use one. Isn't it amazing how your finger strength is gone? I mean, to type back in the day, you had to have like 40 pounds of pressure to push those keys to make it whack on the ribbon to hit the piece of paper that when you messed up way before whiteout came out, and some of you don't even know what whiteout is, or corrective tapes, man, you had to start all over, or you turned in a semi clean-looking document. But my mom and dad both could type. I think it was my dad's college typewriter that we have probably somewhere at your house. One of those little, comes in a little black box, probably not worth much today, but it's worth a lot to us as far as, you know, sentimental value. And he or she could be able to type, now is the time for all good men to come to the... All the young people going, what are those old people talking about? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, some teaching professor or instructor... A gazillion years ago, produced that. He actually changed the end of it 
Uh, it's a little different ending of what the uh, poem was, but now's the time for all good men to come to the aid of the country. I said, we need to recapitalize that for our church and for our Christian walk and say, now's the time for all good men and women, boys and girls, to come to the aid of the church. Now's the time. Now's the time for all of us to pray. Now's the time for all of us to go to Sunday school. I know Jim is in here beating the bush, and that's my two cents to give Jim today. We are up somewhere around 80 lately, haven't we been? I say we can break 100. I say we should have 75% of what we have in worship. Is that a good RE-type statistic? Yeah, there you go. So if 200 people went to church, you ought to have somewhere like 150 going to Sunday school. That's public math for a guy who went to a public school. So be careful. Now is the time for tithing. Oh, Norris is not even here, but if he was, he would be stomping his foot. Now is the time for witnessing. Now is the time to go to that guy back in the back and talk about a mission. Now is the time to start serving. Now is the time to start volunteering. Now is the time to live out your faith, not just at 11 o'clock on Sunday. And thank you, Deborah, for being here at 10 o'clock because she thought we were starting at 10. How nice to have people coming in and sitting in the pews to pray before the service started. Now is the time. Recently on the airplane coming back from taking our grandson to, uh, back to Washington State, I watched the movie Big George Foreman. Remember George Foreman? He's a Texan, yeah. And you know, those of you who have heard some of my sermons, you know I, I was a big Ali fan and how hurt I was that Ali beat him up so badly. Nah, I, I wasn't. I was, I was cheering, you know. That was like in what year? Anybody know? Back in the dark ages, I know. It's close enough. Uh, 1974. And would you know that I had forgotten. In fact, 1989, I'm here on active duty. I'm just learning what prayer breakfasts are. I told you I, I used that video clip this morning at a prayer breakfast where typically a base tries to get somebody of importance. <laughs> they had no money. That's why I went to that base. Uh, think that through. But I was going there TDY already, and they're like, why don't you be our prayer breakfast speaker? Okay, I will. So we were trying at Lackland to get George Foreman to come be our prayer breakfast speaker. We, you know... We knew him as the big guy that, you know, when he beats Ali, he's slim and trim. By the time late 80s are coming around, when I'm trying to get him here, he's a big man. He's definitely big George Foreman. Of course, uh, we didn't get past his front clearing office. We didn't get him to come. But I so wish, because we thought he was, you know, washed up, 1989. Five years later, he would win the title again as world heavyweight boxing champion at I think 40-some-odd years of age, and carrying probably about 50 pounds more. And I thought, how does that apply to the sermon? Because most of you are saying you just say things just because you like to say them. How many times we have forgotten the glory of Jesus and that now is the time to do something for him? He left you here with the commission, with his Holy Spirit to empower you to motivate you to serve him, to proclaim he's coming again. Not the time to be washed up and not doing anything for the Savior. Could you imagine, I thought about this this week. <clears throat> Do you remember uh, the lottery that was about, I don't know, a month ago or so? It was a billion dollars. It's a billion, I mean B billion. Can you count that high, Jed? No, okay. I, 
I can't either. I, I was thinking maybe you could. But billion. How would you like to know that I just took, what do they cost, $2? <laughs> Somebody answered that and they go, oh, don't they cost like $2? I mean, you can probably buy different levels, but what, how would it be if I had taken $2 out of the church's offering and I had bought one of those lottery tickets and come to find out we, First Baptist Church, had won the lottery? What excitement there would be in this church. Everybody coming to get their million dollars and take it home. We'd find every member that never claimed to be a member to show up that Sunday because Cliff is going to hand out the one billion, or Dan would be doing it because he's a treasurer. He's a money guy. We'd be handing out a billion dollars. Let me tell you that the lottery that Christ gave to you and I far exceeds any financial amount that this world might provide. To know Jesus is better than any lottery, and now is the time to know him. Last week I, I said, that's our next point, now's the time to know him. Last week I, I, I know I copied the same type of header for one of my points. I said it was a joy to know, and I played uh, Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, and he's answering incorrectly, if you remember that video. Um, but today I think I just want to chop it down to say knowing him Knowing him, to know him, is something to, to reflect and to let, you know, what, what do they talk about when you get ready to make fajitas? You let it marinate. You want it to, to sink in, knowing Jesus. Now, Jesus offers perhaps the most simple, elegant explanation of what eternal life is in verses 2 and 3. Let me read those for you. He's talking to the Father. You granted him, referring to himself, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Still talking about himself. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not that often that we get a straightforward definition of eternal life. If I gave a quiz today and say, said, everybody write down what is eternal life, I'm, I'm guessing they would all not be the same description. There might be some different words in there. I'm sure there would be something about faith in Jesus and believing in him and having your sins forgiven. Jesus says eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Wow. Wow. How many times have you heard that description? Don't raise your hand. Well, if you're still awake, you could raise your hand. I would guess rarely. Is it really that simple? Have we made it more complicated? And of course, if we say eternal life is knowing God and knowing the Son, somebody's going to say, well, how, how do I know him? And I would answer that by saying, have a relationship with him. There are many people I know something about, but I don't know them. Ginesco, or is, ginosis is the Greek word for know, but he puts a different ending on it. It is the Greek word for knowledge, to know something. It is also the same word that Mary says when the angel comes to her and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And he says, she says, whoa, can't happen. I haven't known a man. In other words, it is the word in biblical terms to know someone is to have intimate relationships with them. Jesus, in these previous 16 chapters, has given us an intimate inside look 
at what it is to know the Father and the Son. He's helped us know the Father through the miracles that he has performed, through the compassion that he had for those who were outside the holy circles of the synagogue. He showed us his ability to stand fast, to know the word, God's holy word. He showed us his power. He showed us the fact that he was a servant. He did all that in these previous chapters, and now he's simply saying, have a relationship with me. Have a relationship with the Father. I will tell you, in you know, March makes 40 years of ordained ministry for me, this coming March. And in those 40 years, I have met, I started to think, I was going to say today, well, I met thousands, I don't know, I, I'm sure I have. I've, I've preached, I used to preach to 1,400 basic trainees every Sunday at Lackland. You get to see a lot of people, especially when you do that three times in a row. And then you have the Baptist service after that. So you preach four times in a row. I used to tell people, by the third service, I thought I was, you know, Billy Graham. <laughs> the water fell. And, and by the fourth service, I wondered who I was. Because it's like, Lord, I, forgive me for saying the same stuff, and it wasn't good three times ago. But I, I prayed with, I counseled, I buried, I married. Uh, I became friends with some, and became very close in relationship with some. And others, I was the guy they called who needed somebody to do a funeral, who needed somebody to, to marry them, who needed a prayer at a public event. You know, old Joe in that video earlier this morning, he, he didn't know all those people. I mean, he knew some of them. Just like some of you could probably tell who, you know, some of you, if you're true Southerners, you count by the numbers of the cars, and you can tell who the drivers are. And, you know, you get to certain numbers, you go, oh, yeah. And if you get to number 43, you know who that is, right? I know I'm in Texas, but never mind. Petty, thank you, thank you. I was waiting for somebody to say the king, but he's not the king of kings, but he was, yeah, whatever. But the rest of that story is, you know, that boogity, yeah, boogity, whatever, I can't even say that word fast enough. Boogity, boogity, boogity came from who? Daryl Waltrip, and, and has he announced NASCAR races as they were coming down, you know, the start-finish line, he's like, boogity, 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 there they go. He said he borrowed that from a Ray Stevens song, The Streak. When the naked man or woman is running through streaking, he said, boogity, 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 there they go. So he said he thought it worked good with NASCAR. And Pastor Helms met because there where he is in Lebanon is also the same area that Daryl Waltrip is from. And they were at a gas station together. And Waltrip comes up, to Brother Joe and says, hey, you're the boogity, boogity, boogity man. And Joe says, no, you're the boogity, boogity man. So they knew each other, but they didn't know each other. That's what I'm trying to get through your heads today and into your hearts to know Jesus, to know the Father. And how do you do that? By spending time with him. Sometimes you just need to turn the TV off, turn off the iPhone, even maybe shut your Bible and just sit there and listen to what God is trying to say to you. Sometimes you do need to pick up his story and stay with it, even when you get the words you can't pronounce or the places you don't know where they are. It will help you to get to know him. Do you know him? Tell somebody about him, and you will find out how much you know about him and how he will help you have the words 
to tell others about him. Do you know him? Do you know the name of John Vassar? Sounds like it should be the name of a university. Isn't there a Vassar? John was a, I can't say he was a soldier. I would just say he was an, I'll say he was an employee of the American Tract Society during the Civil War. While he refused a chaplain's commission, and I think they got paid, which was pretty unusual, he refused that because he was directly connected with the American Tract Society, and he brought tracts wherever he went. What little I've read on him, he, they said if a soldier was tired, he carried their gun. If the soldier was tired, he might carry their backpack, and he would pray with them. And as they died around him, he would pray with them. Or as they were wounded and lay dying, he would pray with them. He was so good at his job staying behind, he got captured after Gettysburg. Even though he was on the Union side, uh, General Jeb, thank you, captured him. And as the story goes, you know, they were, thought he was a spy, and as he's being interrogated, he finally tells him, hey, you know, I, I'm, do you know of the American Tract Society? And the general said, yes, I do. And then with that, Jeb says, but do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And kept on that and over that, even in the midst of danger for his own life and, you know, risking everything. He's on the, other, he's on the enemy side at this point, and he keeps saying to the general, do you know Jesus? And finally, the general tells his man, let him go. He's promised to keep his mouth shut for 24 hours where we are. Otherwise, we're going to have a prayer meeting from here to Richmond. In other words, let him go because we're going to hear nothing about Jesus until we get where we're going. Do you know him? Vassar knew Jesus. Vassar was faithful in the faiths of death to tell about his Savior. He brought glory that day to the Father and to the Son. Jesus was faithful, obedient to the cross. And that's where we tie all this together. If it were not for the cross, we would not have our opportunity for eternal life, for salvation. And to know Jesus is to know that. To know the Father is to know how much he loved us, that he sent the only perfect sacrifice for you and I. Now is the time to know him. I stumbled across Sir Thomas Fuller, who was, I knew the name, but I didn't know he had had this quote. He was an English preacher from mid-1600s, also a church historian. He writes this, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. I'll say that for you one more time for those of you who listen like I do. You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Stand with me, please, as we pray. Our fathers, we come now to a time of invitation in this service. Lord, I know that many of us have heard of what Christ did. We have perhaps head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. We know of him, but we perhaps do not know him. We have not become intimate with him to know his heart and have him change our heart. So I pray, Lord, in this moment, this time of invitation. We don't know how long we have. Each of us here with any tenure in our lives at all, we know that life is very brief. James Rice is like a vapor. We heard about that this week in our weekly Bible study. 
So before it's too late for one of us, it's now the time to know him. If there's someone here, Lord, who needs to come to this altar and pray, they have something they want to leave behind, they just want to confess it to you and, and seek your forgiveness, Lord, whatever decision there, there is, I know we have people who will join them in prayer. Perhaps there's somebody here who says, I've never really known Jesus, and I want to know him personally, intimately. I want to know him so I might have eternal life. Father, let them start walking towards this front area even before we sing the first verse. Now is the time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.